Welcome to the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada, a podcast about ex-cadet women mentoring and building community together. I'm your host, Amanda Calhouse, a graduate of the Royal Military College of Canada, class of 1994 in electrical engineering. All right, so good morning. Today on the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada podcast, we have Dr. Erin White. How are you doing this morning, Erin? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'm. It's always interesting to hear about the different paths people have taken um, after military college. And uh, we've just recently um, interviewed our first doctor on the show, but she was ROTP or MOT, MMTP, MOTP, um, MOTP. And you are, you did the MMTP? Yes, the Military Medical Training Plan, um, which is a voluntary occupational transfer from whatever your prior trade is to medical officer. Awesome. So, so excited to hear about that transition and, and how you got there. But let's, you know, go back in time and tell us, you know, your, tell us um, where you went to, to, for your undergrad and what you studied. Perfect. Yeah. So I am a proud uh, 2002 grad of uh, the Royal Military College in Kingston, uh, 10 Squadron for Life. Uh, and my program was chemical engineering. Awesome. Oh, my goodness. Every time I hear like something more than eight squadron, I'm like, oh, I'm so old. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. I felt the same way when they came up with 11 squadron. I was <laughs> Yep, it does happen that way, doesn't it? And what was your military occupation prior to your occupational transfer? I was an air navigator, the actual air navigator, um, and the trade subsequently uh, became the air combat systems officer or AXO trade. And so that was my prior trade. Awesome. And so what prompted you to go to military college in the first place? Well, I, I got to say, I... I really appreciated you asking that question. I think back to high school, which is quite a long time ago now, and I realized I was really active. You know, I had uh, academics going on, obviously, sports, uh, several different sporting teams, and then a strong connection uh, with music. And so uh, I remember thinking about where I could continue to flourish and what environment would allow me to continue to do those things. Military college seems like a great opportunity. Uh, it was small. Uh, it was structured. <laughs> it mm -hmm. was um, a community that was very, very close-knit. Um, and uh, the larger universities did seem a bit daunting when I kind of thought about going to sprawling campuses like Carleton or Ottawa U. I knew the military would offer me a great opportunity for a career. And I must admit uh, that I was a bit unsure at the time that I transitioned from high school, even though I had OAC, which is a while ago now. <laughs> um, but I was still unsure about what I really wanted to be when I grew up. And so to me, military college and the military offered a chance to have that structure in a university setting to continue to do the things that I love through sports and music while pursuing academics and then offered me a career at the end, which I thought was very, very attractive. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention, of course, uh, both my dad and my brother went there. So I knew a bit more about the military college. And that was definitely a big pull for me to, to go uh, to go and apply. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm like, 
how did you know all of these things about it? So yeah, having yeah. having family members who had experienced it. Um, and, you know, we're, you know, so I'm, I'm always curious because people always ask me, oh, would you, you know, I have daughters, would you, would you recommend it to your daughters? And so I'm curious, you know, how did your dad feel about his daughter going there? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I should probably ask him outright, but I just remember my dad trying to kind of put me off of it. And it wasn't a, you can't do it. It was a, are you sure? Or really? And uh, he, I guess, had me pegged to be an architect, which uh, I love you, dad, but I don't understand to this day. I, I'm not particularly artistic or creative. Um, I do like um, things to be lined up in particular ways. But uh, yeah, so I think it was it was more out of him wanting to make sure I felt I could pursue my own path and that I simply wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, following in the footsteps of he and my brother because, you know, there was any pressure to do so, which which there absolutely wasn't. So I, I think and I think, honestly, he was probably uh, a bit uh, worried, uh, you know, protective, if you will. Um, but he's uh, he and my mom equipped me to kind of uh, look out for myself. And and so I'm, I'm sure once I went, he was once I said, no, I, I really want to go. He, he was he was well on board. So, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So um, tell me a little bit more about, you know, your career um, from then until now as a as a doctor. How long did you spend as a, an air nav and AXO? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, the air nav uh, piece was basically from when I graduated. Well, when I enrolled in 1998, uh, up until I voluntary occupationally transferred BOT. Um, in 2009, um, I graduated RMC in 2002 and went to navigator training at the Canadian Forces Air Navigation School in Winnipeg. Um, and I completed that training in 2003. Um, I asked to be a Sea King navigator. It was my top pick. And oh, wow. uh, I was very, very ecstatic uh, to be selected for that. Um, not necessarily, I think some people, you know, think of Aurora's and they think of the Herc and it's all Gucci. I was totally enthralled by helicopters. And so I was posted to 443 uh, Squadron in Victoria, which I affectionately refer to as the Flying Club. Um, and I think many others do too, uh, after uh, after graduation from Sea Fans in 2003. And I did OJT until I went on my actual Sea King Navigator specific training, tactical uh Tactical Coordination Officer or TACO training. Uh, that was in uh, 2004 until about 2005. And then I went back to 443. Um, when I was at 443, really great experience, uh, beautiful flying. You can imagine feet out the window at the back of the Sea King with the mountains below you. It's, it's pretty exceptional. Uh, benefited from being able to sail on the mighty Algonquin uh, for RIMPAC, which is a, a naval exercise off the coast of Hawaii. And also at TGX, can't remember what that acronym stands for, but super jammy sail down the West Coast to San Francisco, San Diego, and Mexico. Uh, no operations, but uh, at that point. Um, but grumbling along in the background was um, this relationship with my then boyfriend, now partner. And so as I kind of started to think about my life um, and reflect on where my life was going in the military, I, I completed my upgrade to crew commander at the end of 2007 and then had asked to be posted to Cold Lake to be with him. He was in a different community, uh, the fighter mm -hmm. community, and I was posted to 
the aerospace engineering test establishment from 2007 until 2009, which was, and I was the deputy opso there. So great opportunity to meet um, fascinating people who test systems and air, airplanes, um, all of whom who have very process oriented uh, uh, mm. kind of mindsets. Uh, and yeah. so that was an experience in itself for sure. Yeah. And that's sort of my career before, before medicine. Um, and then 2009, I uh, had applied that previous year uh, with some encouragement from uh, a very amazing boss uh, to the military medical training program and was accepted in 2009 to the University of Ottawa. And that the rest is, as they say, history. <laughs> Excellent. So um, now you're still serving today because I think I didn't clarify that earlier. But you were still serving. So did you make a conscious decision to stay in? Or is it that you just haven't decided to leave? <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both. What a great way to say it. Um, uh, the, the status quo, right? The status quo, I yeah. think, for most things is always the, the default or, or can often be the default. And it's the place of comfort. But the military adds a whole other level of of challenges and breaking away it's definitely a culture and it's definitely a family and uh i would say i i, I benefit the military has offered me so much uh with respect to my training my undergrad degree my medical training obviously medicine very transferable so i i, I feel grateful that i can take my skills and use them um on the city side but i've worn a uniform since i was 18 i wouldn't know how to put an outfit together. Medical school was challenging for that. I, I know what the military family is like. I know what to expect and what it expects of me. I have the support of peers and colleagues and the organization. And so it's, uh, it's been a bit of a mix of both. I, I would be uh, lying if I didn't say I'm planning an exit strategy, given that I have 25 years in, um, but not quite ready, I'm trying to make sure I tidy up all my goals that I have for military service. Um, some of them probably won't get there, but uh, just taking every advantage of all the opportunities the military has to offer that we don't have on the civilian side. And then um, once I sort of have a, a firm exit strategy and I've achieved some more of those goals, I think, I think I'll be retiring, but uh, definitely going to be a challenging transition. I uh, definitely think there's a lot to be said about the offboarding process or the retirement process from the military and, and what that looks like for people and how challenging it can be given we are um, indoctrinated into the military yeah. and we benefit um, from from so much of that family. It's it's a really interesting point and something that I've heard from several guests over over the past few years is really that that transition piece. I will say, if you haven't already joined, we do have a private Facebook group and you can you can go in there and just, you know, ask those questions about, hey, <laughs> I'll no, tell you I, my I, strategy for putting outfits together is to buy them <laughs> what the way they are on a mannequin. <laughs> Or, or accept the help when you go into a store, right? Yeah. No, yeah, I, yeah. No, that's, I'm grateful to hear about the Facebook group. And I think you're right. Again, great, great um, ideas like this podcast, connecting people and helping people transition through through major life events, including leaving the military. I think it's, it's exceptional to have that support network for sure. 
Oh, well, thank you for saying that. But I think one of the reasons is because it didn't exist when I was getting out. And so it was a gap that that I saw and hope to, you know, provide us a small, a small piece of, uh, of support. So I'd like to talk a little bit about mentorship. I'm, I'm curious, you're in you know, what has previously been described to me, healthcare in general has more women, it tends to have more women than some of the other military occupations in particular. Have you found female mentorship in your area? And, you know, how is that in your trade in general? Yeah, I, I think it's it's very astute uh, to kind of observe that that we are a female dominant trade and health services writ large because of the other trades, pharmacy, nursing, which are typically kind of more female dominated. I, I definitely have benefited from mentorship within health services. Uh, a few names that come to mind, uh, Millie Casey Campbell. I still remember the day she's a, a senior colleague and uh, I can't remember what context, but I had reached out to her and, sh- and by email and the phone rang. And she was calling and I assume she was calling to answer my question, but, um, and I think she did within the first two minutes, but then just said, you know, how are you? And, and that was, mm. I still remember that moment because I, I thought this, this person, I don't know this person. And she genuinely is actually calling me because she's trying to connect and I have benefited from her mentorship um, in various different uh, capacities since then. And just a very strong uh, female physician to look up to calling force J. Um, I wouldn't, I don't know if she would consider me one of her mentees, but definitely a force to be reckoned with within our community. Um, very, very, um, open, honest, uh, willing to collaborate, happy to take a call, which at her rank, she's a Colonel can be challenging. She's got so many other, um, pressing items, but just the fact that she will pick up the phone and, or answer an email or, or take a call, it's pretty exceptional. Uh, locally, you know, uh, physicians like Dr. Laura Robertshaw, who's a local colleague whose experience I've benefited from my nursing colleagues, Kristen Farrell, uh, who's a civilian, uh, primary care nurse who I work with, who has been invaluable and has really helped me become the physician and the clinician that I am. My med tech colleagues, sorry, I'm going through a list. It sounds like an Oscar speech, but, um, Master <laughs> Warren Officer Julie Isabel and Warren Officer Donna Vanderweel, these amazing, powerful female, um, leaders in the uh, health services branch uh, who have mentored me. Um, and then, of course, uh, one of my retired colleagues, Major Marie-Gilles Morin, who was uh, the commanding officer at 24, who just um, really inspired me to fully uh, become the leader and uh, the collaborator that, that, I, that I could be. Of course, my mom. My mom's a super strong personality, and uh, she's been invaluable. But, but yeah, the, the only thing I would say, and I appreciate your comment, is you know about again about the, the female preponderance. It's mentorship happens, and we look to mentorship from people who look like us, right? And when there is a paucity of um, of representation at the highest levels, I I get to wondering why that is specifically within health services because we do have such a large majority uh, of women. And again, uh, Colleen Forrest J um, being a colonel, that's the highest representation that we have in an organization that goes up to, to major general. And so uh, it's something that I, I honestly kind of look at and I think, can, can we um, in our, in our organization do a better job of inspiring women to 
they're already inspired, actually. That's not right. a true statement, but but ensuring that we have adequate representation that reflects uh, the diversity of uh, our trades um, of all ranks so that we can be mentored at the highest levels and we can have the diversity that I think we need to enable the culture change that the CAF is going through right now. I just, I feel like we need to have that representation. Um, Rear Admiral, Rear Admiral uh, Rebecca Patterson was a nursing officer right. in health services, uh, now a senator, if I'm not mistaken. So again, yeah. the kind of person that is pretty exceptional, but um, she was our highest ranking female officer. So I'm, I'm excited and hopeful that uh, health services will will have the representation uh, of the diverse uh, groups that we have, including uh, women, um, and that we'll start to see them at, at uh, the highest levels um, where I think they belong to, to inform culture change. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting how even with uh, a majority of, you know, of one gender that the highest ranking and, and, Correct me if I'm wrong, but the health services trade, it's not one of the trades that only opened to women in 1989, correct? Oh, gosh. I actually, I'm really bad at history. So I know I, I wouldn't imagine so. I mean, Karen, uh, Dr. Breek, yeah, would yeah. have been better suited to answer given that she, but no, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think so, but I, no. gosh, you've caught me off guard. I'm a horrible historian. Uh, no, no, I, <laughs> no, it was just, it was just really that, um, you know, in 89, they opened um, combat, um, like combat and operational positions to women. But medical right. wouldn't have been seen like a, a doctor, you would still have had female doctors that could have been in the forces. Yeah. I'll double check. I'll double check and, and you know, make a make a note on the, the podcast uh, footnotes. Yeah. Well, and certainly our nursing colleagues, I mean, they've been present right. since <clears throat> the world wars. I world mean, wars, such yeah. strong representation and, and female physicians as well, but uh, not since the wars, but, uh, but you, you think, yeah. So also we have pilots that are Lieutenant generals where women only came in in 1989. So even if that was the case, it's not that there weren't women there to do the job. So like right. that and I hadn't and been I, in long enough to attain that rank. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and I, yeah, I, I think, I think again, especially where we're trying to go with uh, general Karagna with the culture change. Um, I know that's directed by the CDS, but she's spearheading that, you know, um, why is that? So it's a, it's a great question. And it's definitely no discussions are ongoing within health services. Um, maybe yeah. not at the right, right level, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll watch the space and see. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense. So um, what have been some of the highlights over your career, whether as an AXO or as a medical officer or as as an individual? I love this question. And I'm like, I have the worst memory. <laughs> so, <laughs> so part of Sorry if I kind of come up with things that perhaps are a bit quaint, but, and I don't know how you felt about the obstacle course, but finishing that obstacle course was definitely a highlight for me. I think it was um, just recognizing the power that comes from a team working together to achieve a common aim, right? Like the definition of, of teamwork, basically, right. or leadership is, is having people do that. And that, uh, not, never mind my skin, feeling the best from all that mud and whatever was in the mud that it had ever <laughs> felt, but but achieving that goal with my peers and, you know, going back to your previous question about are, are you, why are you actively deciding to stay, you know, is, 
who else understands that? Like, remember that time we rolled around in the mud together, or like yeah. and became almost hypothermic, you know, like it, it's just uh, having those great achievements together that kind of unite us. Um, RMC grad, obviously, Wings, Wings grad, both because they're great uh, to me, momentous occasions for all the right reasons, but also my dad uh, was present to give me my commission and also mm. to give me my nav wings. So, um, uh, and my parents, my mom was there as well. So very great. Um, highlights otherwise, I on Brimpack, um, one of the things we did was we took our, our helicopters out and my job is to find the submarine, right? It's, it's kind yeah. of antiquated, but I got a ping. I got a ping off of a submarine. I didn't get any other pings off the submarine, but I definitely um, got one ping, like insert uh, the Hunt for Red October, you know, one yeah. ping only um, by shot. But I got a ping off a submarine, so I'll remember that. Um, and then really, it's been a little bit cliche, I would say, meeting my husband. So would not have met him without the military. Lifelong friends, my best girlfriends, Jan and Julia, were both peers of mine, uh, both on basic officer training and then at military mm. college. The gifts that I've been offered for education for both my, under, my engineering undergrad and right. medical degree. I mean, the military has given me all that. It's come at a cost, uh, you know, but right. but uh, but that's been fantastic. Patient encounters. I just can't talk enough about um, the double-edged sword that is medicine. It offers you so much and it takes so much. So truly mm-hmm. highlights would be the patients that you truly connect with and you see meaningful improvements or they just feel supported through a challenging medical experience. And then the last thing I would say was the pandemic, you know, at, in Trenton, heart of air mobility, we were at the epicenter. We certainly were not running the repatriation of entitled uh, personnel at the beginning of the pandemic, but there was a long, that was Red Cross and um, mm-hmm. local public health and um, uh, PHAC, a public health agency of Canada they were the key stakeholders, but there was definitely a military component of that and everything else that happened after we were just, at, you know, at the center. It. And so it was a highlight because it was probably the most challenging experience a lot of us have had in our lives. And I will not pretend in any way, shape or form that the Canadian Forces Health Services experience was the same as our civilian colleagues, you know, in primary mm. care on the front lines in the emergency rooms and the respiratory therapists. And I, I just, I can't even imagine, but the, how health services came to the forefront. And certainly that was true on the ground at the tactical level in Winnipeg, where we were, we at 24 health services were concurrently enabling air mobility operations, um, supporting our local population to be healthy and also offering support to um, various activities that were happening throughout the pandemic so so definitely both a highlight and a low light if I'm gonna be honest so yeah yeah I can imagine yeah and I so were you in in Trenton at the time or yes yeah Yeah, I was I was gonna say that's where when people were coming back from overseas that's where they came to I initially right I had I had a reservist um that I work with um, in my day job that was there for for several weeks. Yeah. And so, I mean, it started with that. I mean, again, Public Health Agency of Canada, Red Cross, local public health spearheading that, but it was the wing commander uh, in Trenton and his team who sort of were augmenting from a military perspective. Um, right. After that, it was the quarantine facilities. So we were so well-versed yeah. at it. It was, why don't we push all our people through there, you know, and uh, 
and that came with a bunch of challenges. But yeah, it it definitely pushed us to uh, to our limits and uh, and not all good things, but to overcome that adversity on top of what we were all experiencing during the pandemic. And again, I will never pretend to know um, the adage, you know, the ocean that was the pandemic and not all of us mm. are in the same boat. I mean, my boat was honestly pretty awesome compared to, I'm sure, a lot of others, um, but but it still took its toll, um, uh, both the initial activities of the return of the entitled personnel and then mm. um and then subsequent support to operations yeah so and and my job in that was the medical advisor to the wing commander um and all the unit COs um and and then 24 hour services was just testing people left and right med techs going into long-term care facilities just just you know truly truly um exceptional work being done on all levels um came at a, a pretty big cost um to our people yeah yeah I was gonna say I would I would imagine there have been some after effects of that for your staff absolutely I mean burnout is rampant you know through healthcare providers and uh so we we again we were not at the front line uh, we were a family care setting um but it was the additional tasks the additional challenges with staffing and challenges um across the board to really feel like we could actually do our jobs it, the resources became right. pretty scant and uh, i think that was the hardest hit moment um we're starting to see some recovery now again uh, major retired morin was a, uh, the ceo at the time was a big proponent to shine a light on what was happening within the unit and the challenges that we were facing and the repercussions that were probably very similar to a lot of other clinic, clinics, but in the context mm. of being the support uh, supporting health services center to air mobility, which became the default airline for all operations, you know, across mm. Canada, that that was that was challenging. I mean, it's it's so interesting to reflect back on it now because mm-hmm. you know, we have vaccines and we know the we have a bit more data about kind of short uh, midterm effects and uh, side effects and. Um, and uh, we all benefit from vaccines if we've chosen to pursue them. And uh, we know the precautions and the, the disease, the illness trajectory, part of me is a lot less sinister for COVID. But at the same time, that was, it's when you reflect back with the unknowns and the oh, concern yeah. that people had and the very real fear that was running rampant, obviously, and just having to kind of stay the line. And yeah, anyway. So definitely, definitely some healing that's happening, but definitely took a lot out of our people. Um, not not saying in any way, shape, or form that others weren't weren't affected in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about advice that you might have for others. Right on. Advice: follow your dreams. Like it's such a cliche, but <laughs> on some level, when I look back and I think about why I'm a military doctor right now, I realized some of the indicators were there. I actually didn't see them. It's only retrospectively Mm. when I look back. And so thinking about what my other choices were for undergrad, like bioscience and biomedical stuff. And I'm like, gosh, I knew then. I just chose to go to the military college and do chemical engineering, which again, kept the door open. Um, if, if you are thinking about it, do it. That's the advice that I got from my amazing boss, um, when I thought about applying and so follow your dreams, such a cliche. So very true. Um, this, the value that 
I know this is a podcast geared towards women. So the value that women bring. Mm. And I think that we are so quick to, to take us a, a backseat and, or to downplay our accomplishments, because that's kind of what our culture and our society expects from us. And it's not do it like a man. It's be a strong, powerful woman and don't shy away from that space and recognize that, especially I think in the context of this culture change that's happening in the calf, I'm, you know, uh, a relative optimistic pessimist, I guess, in, in that context, <laughs> but to, to just encourage and implore women to push themselves into that space. And I know that comes at a cost personally, professionally, emotionally, intellectually, all those things. But um, I just feel like there is so much that we as women in uniform have to offer and that the calf can benefit from. And so please be that that space, be yourself doing it. Um, I read a book called um, At the Recommendation of a Colleague, Sherry Muggerberg, uh, Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Uh, it's Carolyn Criado Perez, one of her quotes, failing to include the perspective of women is a huge driver of unintended male bias that attempts, often in good faith, to pass itself off as gender neutral. Hmm. And I think that's what's happening, you know, is... Right. We, we don't, again, like my narrative previously about seeing the women role models and the mentors that are in very high-ranking positions when, when we don't have women at the table in those positions, when we have great organizations like defense advisory groups that can be consulted by the commanders who choose to employ them, um, you know, and that's fantastic. But when we, when we don't push our voice out there everybody loses diversity right truly is the best means to have a strong workplace and an inclusive uh culture and and that's what we should be driving for so that's my advice is super cliche is follow your dreams um relentlessly um and don't let uh the glass ceiling uh hit you push down you back. <laughs> and yeah exactly or, or push you down and uh and the second is just the the value of the female perspective and the value of our voices in the CAF at large and health services um, so that we can promote diversity and inclusion and we can see ourselves at all levels um, within the CAF and health services. Yeah. I think that's uh, fantastic advice and I appreciate the uh, book recommendation. I think I'm going to try and pull together. We've had quite a few over the years of book recommendations and often different ones. So um, I'm actually particularly excited about this one because I'm about to sign up for a course on data analytics at U of T next week. So <laughs> I'm going to be asking them, are you uh, including women in your... <laughs> And like the sex, sex and gender based um, analyses, right? So, yeah. so are are we are they floridly pushed out? And I would I would really love to hear back about how that data analytics go if you pose that. But what is you know what about sex and gender bias? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I'm curious. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm yeah I'm quite curious about the course. So I'll, we'll see how it goes and what the the lens is. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and and education, right? It's so. And my joke is like, what do I want to be when I grow up? Because the opportunities are endless. And I, I, I think edu education is such a cornerstone of that. So I'm always thrilled to hear what other people are getting their fingers into, you know, college courses and university level stuff. It's very fascinating and, and inspiring.
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. Um, and uh, it's been great talking to you and I, I wish you all the best. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's really an honor to chat with you. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to, to hear the edited version. And uh, yeah, thanks again for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today on the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada podcast. Check out our new website at wmncanada.ca to find links to all our previous seasons and episodes. We've also added a blog where we'll keep you updated on upcoming news and events and give you a chance to leave comments about each episode. For links to websites mentioned on today's episode, please go to the episode notes page under season four and check out the episode number. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, please send an email through the Be A Guest link on the top of our website. Thanks for listening.